following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. If you're new to Sacred City, we have been going through the book of Ephesians for many months now, calling it identity formation. Basically what happens when we come to put our faith in Jesus, our whole life gets flipped on its end. God gives us a completely new identity in the gospel. The, the old self is gone, uh, and the new self has come. Um, and, and Paul is really teaching us here as we're in this section of the book of Ephesians of what it looks like to live into this new identity that we have received um, in Christ. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, uh, you may have noticed this. Um, it's common. It's, a, it's kind of a, a pretty common piece of wall decor. You walk into somebody's home um, and you see this um, it's like a sign, and it's got a bunch of words on it, basically like house rules. Have you seen this before? House rules. This is what we do in, in this house. I, I printed one off from the internet. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about uh, to tell you about it. And you, if you want this, you can take it and tack it up on your wall too. Um, just to get an idea, these are the house rules. Love one another. Always make time to spend with each other. Say please and thank you. Try everything once. Have fun. Treat others as they want to be treated. Make new memories. Do what you love. Always tell the truth. Think of others before thinking of yourself. Dream big. Share an adventure. Count your blessings. Work hard, but play harder. Learn to say, I'm sorry. Learn to forgive and forget. Learn to never stay angry, right? Cute, right? See up on the wall, kind of cute, like house rules. And what this is saying is, hey, as a family, this is how we are choosing to operate. This is how we're going to conduct ourselves as this part of the family. House rules, right? And Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 is basically that. It's the Apostle Paul laying out house rules for the church. Okay, so already back in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, if you are in Christ, you are members of the household of God. That you have been, this is crazy, people, that you have been adopted by God. So now you have a heavenly father, and you are in the family with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So here you are as a member of the household of God. And now Paul, after telling us that glorious thing of how that happens through the gospel, he tells us this is how you live in, an, in, a, in a relational ecosystem of grace, which is what the church is. The church is not brick and mortar. It is a relational ecosystem of grace. And what he's telling us here and laying out these house rules is the church is not a free-for-all. Like just because we have grace that is sufficient to cover all of our sins is not a free-for-all. Paul talks about this in Romans where he's like, should we keep on going sinning with the way that we were doing it? He says, by no means. So grace not only has the power to forgive us, but reorient, to redirect, to reshape our lives. And this is what he's doing here and laying out these house rules. He's showing us how grace reshapes everything about us. He's taking, taking this epic reality of the new creation, of what life in the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, and it's working its way backwards to the right here, right now, in the nitty-gritty stuff of life, how the gospel impacts every part of life. 
And as we go through Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, we're halfway through Ephesians 4 right now, going into chapter 5 here in the next coming weeks, we're going to see that Paul covers a wide range of topics. Um, and, and as we put them together and sort of collect them all, what he's doing is showing this unique composition of the Christian life, of how the Christian life is different than any other religious or, or worldview. It's very unique in, in the way that it's composed. And each topic that we come across is honestly worthy of its own sermon. I wish I had time for, you know, one, one, one sermon per verse, because it would be great. Um, but, but we got things to do. Uh, moving forward. Uh, we're looking forward to the next year, 2022. I can't believe that's, cra- that's crazy to say that. Um, we're looking forward to what God has for us in the next year. We're going to spend some time in the minor prophets of Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm really looking forward to that. And so we just can't stay here forever uh, as much as I want to. And so what we got to do here with all of these things, not all of them, but we're going to try to bunch them up little, little bunches at a time and work our way through that. And so today we are facing verses 25 through 29, and we see four topics that the Apostle Paul uh, addresses as far as here's, here's a distinctive of the Christian life. He's going to talk about integrity. He's going to talk about your emotional life. He's going to talk about your work. He's going to talk about communication. These four topics are sort of batch them all together and talk about those. And, and before I tack these rules up on the wall and urge you to abide by them, right, as the sacred city house rules, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking them. I'll show you what, what God is asking for from us when he lays out these rules and he gives us this guidance, this direction of here are the house rules and, and really get underneath of it to another layer of why. Why does God ask for this from us? And part of this is because if we don't understand the rules, um, it, it's hard to follow them, right? Like, I, to be, I don't know anything about hockey. I'm not from Canada. I got a friend from Canada who knows everything about hockey, talk about hockey, and I'm just, I'm just like blowing smoke the whole time because I got no idea. But the, the rules of hockey, completely don't understand it. I know there's lines involved. You can do th- certain things. I get the general concept of get the puck in the net, but the rules, don't get it. Hard to play. And the same is true for us. If we don't understand the rules, we don't understand the why behind them, it can be complicated or it's just a little more challenging for us to really want to give ourselves this rule. So I want to unpack the what and the why, but before I get to the what and the why, um, I've got to address something because we're a little messed up. Me too. Um, We have a dysfunctional relationship with rules. Our human nature is to have a messed up, very confusing, messy, sloppy relationship with the rules, especially when it comes to God's rules, God's law, God's direction for life. And we do one of two things, typically. Our our, our default is to do one of two things. We either are are rule-adverse or we are rule-elevating. One of those two things, rule-adverse or rule-elevating. And it doesn't matter what you do, No matter how you approach these rules, if you're in one of these two categories, you are going to live an impaired life. Your life will either be marked by endless rebellion, which is exhausting, by the way, um, or joyless duty, which is equally exhausting. And neither one of these two things, neither rebellion nor joyless duty are markers of the Christian life because Jesus tells us that he has come to give us the abundant life, a full life. A life marked by wisdom, by true joy, and by freedom. So here we're going to dig into this. What is this adversion? What does it mean to be rule adverse? Now, it's probably what most people typically think of when it comes to rules. Rules are made to be broken, right? 
Like we see the rules, they're put up, we say, okay, they exist to break them. And we have this posture of I dislike them, I want to ignore them, they don't work for me, so I'm just going to go ahead and scooch them off to somebody else. And so we just take this posture of rebellion, of constantly pushing against what the rules are trying to accomplish for our, our lives. And in this, we see rules, especially God's rules, as fun stoppers. That's what they are. They're, meant, they're, they're obstacles to get in the way of how to live my happy life, right? Because that's the thinking, is, is to, be, to live a happy life, I have to break these rules. Or, or we see them as an obstacle to my best life. So, so we feel that, that I've, my default will be to push against the rules, because I don't like to be forced. I don't like the, the external expectation placed upon me to do a certain thing or to not do a certain thing. I'm a little bit stubborn. I think you probably are too. And what happens is we turn into a spiritual version of an angsty pop punk kid, <laughs> right? Listen to Blink-182, getting all angsty and stuff. But, but listen, it, it was going on way before Blink-182, Bon Jovi, Right? It's my life, right? What's he saying? It's my life. It's not. And then even in that song, guess he goes back, references Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? That, that's the attitude. That's the posture of rebellion. It's been around for a long time. You only have to open a Bible and go a couple chapters in to see that. Been around for a long time. And underneath this, actually, let me, I skipped something here. Let me say this. In our rebellion, as much as we want to push against the rules and do our own, own thing, there's something, I, probably just the grace of God, um, that makes us aware that total anarchy is super foolish, right? If everybody does what they want to do without any kind of regard for other people, what's going to happen is our society will unravel and completely decay. It'll be corrupt. It'll be unjust. It'll downright, it'll just be inhumane. And so, Complete anarchy, doing what I want, no regard for the rules. It, it's stupidity is what it is. And so instead of going that far, what we do is we sort of create our own set of rules. Um, rules that are self-selected. So it's like I, I've mentioned this before, the Thomas Jefferson Bible where he sort of snipped things out that he didn't like, didn't agree with, right? I, I'm only going to choose the certain things that I think are, are right. And so you put this filter over, um, this one out, this one in, and so we generate our own set of rules. And sometimes, you know, like we use Christianity as sort of a bedrock, but then we start adopting from, from this religion or this worldview and sort of constructing our own guide, our own rules for life by picking and choosing. Now, under this rule aversion that we feel um, is a prideful assumption. And we gotta see this. You gotta got see it for what it is. When you're picking and choosing what rules to follow, especially when it comes to the rules that God clearly articulates in Scripture, if you're pushing back against it, if you're rule averse, the underlying assumption is that I know better than God. It's like, I know, I know the right way. My sense on right and wrong is more true than God's. My, my take on how to achieve happiness seems to be more reliable than what God directs me. Therefore, I'm going to structure my life in a way that I see fit without regard for what God has to say. What's that? It's a prideful assumption that I know better than God. And, and one of the places that we see this sort of uh, personified, there's an illustration of this, is in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. 
The son who, who lives under the, the, the bounty of his father, very robust and flourishing business operation, yet he says, Dad, I don't want to do life the way that you've laid it out, the way that you've sort of ordered it for me. I don't want to follow in this trajectory. I want to do it my own way. And if you know the story, it doesn't work out for him. Creating your own rules for life will let you down at some point. Because the problem with creating your rules for your own life is that you're finite. You, you and I have a limited understanding. See, our vision, it's like as much as we can see and God graces us to open our eyes to see in this world, it's very much like we have blinders on. Like we just don't get the, the whole picture so we have a very limited understanding, and to make things more complicated, Ephesians 4, if you go back, it tells us that the heart is deceitful. It's twisted, it's corrupted, it's warped. If you go back even further to Jeremiah 17, he says that, yeah, your heart is deceitful, but it's also sick above all things. So one of the defining characteristics of our hearts is that they're twisted, it's warped, that it's really unreliable and untrustworthy. And so if you are creating rules based upon your own heart, your own take, your own uh, understanding, how in the world can they steer you right? It'd be like putting a toddler in the driver's seat of a Mack truck, right? It might go straight for a minute, but eventually that bad boy is going to go right into the ditch. And what you'll find is either the new rules that you make for yourself are actually more limiting than God's rules for life, or you'll find that when you break God's rules, they will break you. That's what happens. Because you're, you're going against the grain of how life works best. So rebellion, that's, that's the first way that we tend to interact with the rules. The other way is, is basically the opposite. It's elevation, where the, the rebel looks at the rules and says, I want nothing to do with that, those who look at the rules and elevate them are all about the rules. They obsess about them. They're kind of nutty about the rules. And, and, then, and then it's almost so much that they're haunted by them. Like every little thing, they're wondering, did I mess up there? Did I break the rule? Did I? And it gets to this point where it's like always wondering where I am at. There's constant worry, constant anxiety, striving to keep up and to follow the rules. Now, part of this, like following the rules, the part of appreciating the rules, that sounds like a good thing. But it's possible to want to follow the rules for the wrong reasons. Countless scenarios throughout Scripture show us this. And, and the people that Jesus critiques the most in his ministry are the Pharisees, the people who not only are trying to keep the rules, but are elevating the rules to another level. Like there, there's, there's a whole new upper echelon of spiritual people because here's the basic rules and now we're super spiritual people because we need to keep these rules and there's only the elite Christians. Only the elite spiritual people can do that. Now what's interesting about this, the, 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 the problem with the motive, the wrong reasons, is because I'm trying to keep the rules not to honor God not, not in allegiance to God, not to say, God, you know, and in humility, God, you know best, and I'm trusting you. No, the, the reason why, when we go to the elevation, that we're following the rules is I'm trying to bolster myself. I'm trying to flaunt it a little bit, to show how capable I am, how able I am to do life the right way. 
Because here's what we think is that, that if I follow all of the rules to the T and then beyond, then I'll finally be a success. Then I'll be a winner. And part of this is this bargaining technique that we, we make with God, that if I follow the rules, if I do the right thing, well, then God will own me, right? If I do all the right stuff, there's no way that God can deny me when I come to him for, with a prayer request, when I ask for a job promotion or, or whatever it might be. There's no, so, so in a sense, I think that if I do the right things, God will be indebted to me. And when you see that you, like, you've got this self-glory thing going on, that you feel confident of, look at my, my ability, look at my competence, what happens is you start to develop the superiority complex. You, you, you begin to look down your nose at other people and say, what's wrong with you? I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you following the rules? Why can't you get it together, right? The Pharisees are a perfect example of this. I mean, the tax collector in, in, the, in the synagogue, the, the, the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. Like, what's he doing? He's looking down his nose. I can't believe he can't keep the rules. You develop the superiority complex, you become compassionless. This, this hyper-legalism makes you arrogant because you think, I did this, makes you proud, says, look what I can do, pat myself on the back, and eventually what will happen will make you cold and heartless. Because what you're thinking in your mind, if you're good at, at elevating the rules and trying to keep them, what you're thinking in, the, in your mind is, rule breakers will get what they deserve. God's going to give me what I want because I kept the rules, but they're going to get what they deserve. Both of these are wildly dysfunctional, yet we so easily drift into one or the other, and sometimes like, you just oscillate between the two depending on the circumstances. And with all this dysfunction, we, we might, this is what we tend to do, um, shift the blame. Adam did it in the Garden of Eden. Eve is, is a woman you gave me, right? She, she ate the fruit. She's the one who, who brought me the fruit. We, we do the same thing. We shift the blame. We, and so we might try to twist this and push the blame onto the rules. Now, when, when we live in a society that are, have man-made rules, there are such things as unjust rules. There are such things as uh, inhumane laws, things that are actually opposed to human flourishing. And in that case, we have legislation, we have the ability to uh, correct bad laws. But when it comes to God's law, God's rule for life, Psalm 19 tells us it's perfect. There are no bad rules in fact, it's so perfect that to abide in God's law brings refreshing to the soul. It's, it's crazy. The, the way that we think of God's rules, like this is, James says this in his epistle. He says that it's the law of liberty, which is paradoxical, right? To think of, uh, you're constraining yourself to have liberty. That's wild. Jesus in Matthew 7 talks about the narrow gate that leads to life, full life, right? So there's this, this paradox of, of limiting to gain more. It's more like true freedom, true, true joy, true life. This is, this is the paradox of God's law. It's not limiting to us. It's not something that we need to fight against as if it's trying to take away from us. God's law, and when he gives us his rules, is meant to lead us to the abundant life. The flourishing life that we all want. The Psalm 1. Like, like a tree planted by streams. See, the problem 
at the, the root of this dysfunction that we have with the rules is not the law, not God's rule for life. The problem lies within our hearts, with, with our sinful and deceitful desires. Now, in order for me to have a functional relationship, to, to have a healthy relationship, to view God's uh, law like it is, the law of liberty, to see it as the narrow gate that opens wide, I have to have a new heart, bottom line. To see it the way the psalmist sees it in Psalm 19, I have to have a new heart, which, thankfully, is what verse 25 starts off acknowledging. So if you want to jump to me, there's a long entry into here, this passage we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. The first word that Paul says is, therefore, therefore, having put away falsehood. So that therefore is meant to take us back to what he just said. And if you were with us the last couple weeks, he was telling us that something profound has just happened. That the old self that was marred and corrupted and warped by deceitful desires has been put off. And a new self has been put into place. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. Or or to borrow from the imagery of of Ezekiel, that, that our heart of stone has been taken out and it's been replaced with the heart of flesh. That is what God has done in the gospel. And Paul is pointing us back to this with the therefore. Now, until the new self is put on, until you realize that you are a new creation in Christ, you will always have a dysfunctional relationship with God's law, with God's rules for life. It requires the new self. Now, with that in mind, as Paul points us back to this new reality of who you are, your new identity in Christ, a new way to interact, a third way, so not, not of rebellion, uh, not of elevation, but of, of, of love for the law, because it's an extension of God, his, his direction, his wisdom, his love towards us. And so this is what happens with the new self. We love the law, because we see what God is trying to do in it. And so Paul here in Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 29, he makes a series of of prohibitions, right? Uh, Saying, hey, stop doing this. Why don't you go ahead and and, and discontinue life the way that you have been doing it before? And and the four things that I mentioned earlier, he's basically going to say, don't lie, right? Put off falsehood. He's going to say, don't be angry and sin. He's going to say, don't steal, He's going to say, don't, use your, don't weaponize your speech. And all of these things that Paul identifies here in these five verses, none of them are like new. Not, like all of them, you go back, you trace them back, you can find them in the Old Testament where God has been laying this out. So this is fascinating. So listen, but what, when, when Paul prohibits this stuff, he's not just saying, hey, cut it out. Stop, stop doing that. What he's trying to do is help us to examine the motives for these actions. And he links them. If you follow the language here through verses or chapter 4, you'll see how he links these actions to, to a condition of the heart. He's linking them. These are the, the ways of the former self, the old self. He's linking our action and our behavior to, to, to the condition of our heart. And so let, let's say this. He says, don't lie. Well, why? Why? What? what what would motivate us to lie to other people? What would motivate us to deceive people? 
But I think there's, there's, I can think of two big reasons. There's probably a bunch of other ones, but I think two reasons, two common reasons. The first one would be this, that, that we lie to please people. We're, we're people pleasers. We're worried about acceptance. We're worried about what other people will think of us. And so we want to kind of portray um, something that will make them think well of me. And so in an attempt to gain someone else's approval, I'll lie. I'll bend the truth. I'll be deceitful. Or, or I think another big reason, and I think this is probably the most profound one, is, is that we're ashamed, especially when it comes to, to telling the truth about myself, about where my heart is at in this, in this moment. Because if, if I tell the truth about the condition of my heart, if I tell the truth about my struggles, if I tell the truth about the things that have transpired in the last week that have really got my cage rattled, people are going to find out. P- people are going to know the real me. And, and there's this fear of, if I tell the truth, will they accept me anymore? Will they still have open arms toward me, or will they, they push me out? See, that, that's the fear. I think that's why a lot of people, especially in our society, are afraid of having real community where they're known and they know other people because we're afraid that, that if the real me comes out, if they know the real me, I'm going to lose my spot here. Now, what about anger? What, what causes us to anger? That's the next thing Paul says here in verse 26. So first he says, put away falsehood, speak the truth with the neighbor, Then 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. So he's not saying, let me just clear this up. He's not saying don't ever be angry. Angry can be a good emotion used for righteousness. In fact, I think a lot of the things that that are motivating um, social justice of liberating women and children who are are in the, the sex trade it's an anger. It's, an, it's a sense of injustice of this is evil and it has to stop. So anger can be used in a righteous way, but there's also ways that anger can trip us up into sin. And oftentimes it happens way easier than what we think, right? It's a very slippery slope. If you let anger take heart and sort of take the steering wheel. Now why? Why does anger tend to lead to to sin. Now, I think a lot of times, especially in the context of, of church community or, or any kind of community, when I am hurt, when someone sins against me, when I feel slighted, I feel this reflex that I got to fight, that it's, it's go time. The war has been waged, and it's time to fight and defend my name, my honor, my reputation. reputation. And so I've got to stand up for myself. And what happens is you let that thing go. It's like a snowball. It'll start picking up steam. And before you know it, you're going to be retaliating. You're going to be paying back evil for evil. And so you're either going to throw hands or you're going to throw words. <laughs> it's like I'm going to fight one way or the other. See, if you let anger grab a hold of you, and you let it to start control you, it will lead you into sin. What about stealing? That's the next thing. He says, let the one who steals steal no more. Why, why does Paul stop? He say, hey, why, why do you need to stop stealing if you're a Christian? He gets under it, the, the why. What causes us to, to want to steal? 
What motivates us toward stealing? It's a sense of covetousness, a sense of greed. It's a sense of envy of they have what I want. And so I, I don't have the means to get it, so I'm going to go take it, right? That, that's one thing. But I think the other thing is this, that we live in a very materialistic world. And what you have in our culture says something about your status. Got a big house, got a nice car, got a new watch, whatever it might be, got a new iPhone, Whatever it is, that piece of material says something about your status. And so the the mindset, you might not be going to shoplift, okay? You're not going to famous footwear and and grabbing a pair of Jordans off the the, the shopping rack there, but but you might be tempted to cut corners at work, right? You, You might be trying to find a way to make that dollar come a little bit easier, even if it means being dishonest, which interestingly takes you back to the first one, what he says, you know, don't lie. See, it's motivated, it's motivated by this, this desire to have more. And underneath of this is this thought that God is holding out on me, so I have to go get my own. And I think this manifests even, even you, you might not be stealing from work, you might not be cutting corners, you might be stealing from coals or whatever, but there's a sense even that, that Mal, uh, in, in uh, Malachi, Malachi 3, Micah 3, one of the M M prophets, he says, listen, you might be stealing from God. In withholding your tithes and offerings, you are keeping from God. Because you think, what what you're thinking in that moment is, I don't think I can make it. I don't think God is going to look after me if I take this step of faith. See, that's the underlying motive behind stealing. God isn't looking out for me, so I gotta do it. And the last thing that Paul prohibits, he says, hey, watch your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out. Don't weaponize your words. Now, this could include crude humor and obscene and tasteless language, but but what's really in view here um, is a language, it's a speech that destroys and tears down other people. It's a hypercriticism. It's a sense of gossip and slander. It's a way that we speak negatively of other people. It's an attempt at at character assassination, a a talk that that pulls down other people. Now, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to devalue people with our words? It's because I myself, it's likely that I'm insecure. And I see the way to to, to lift myself up is to put other people down. That or I'm jealous. I see them. I see what they've got. And I just want to, I want a piece of that. So I'm going to knock them off the top. Now, every motive that, uh, of these prohibitions that Paul makes originates in the old self. Do you see how it operates from a place of unbelief, of distrust? And Paul doesn't say, guys, just cut it out, you know, slap us on the wrist, you know, try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That's not at all what Paul says here as he prohibits these things. See, that's, that's the mindset of, of religion, that you've got to do better, that you've got to try harder. But Paul says, listen, the reason why you don't do these things, the reason why you don't live that way anymore is because that is not who you are. Fundamentally. You are a new creation. That is not the way you were designed to live. See, the the gospel says you do not need to lie in order to please people. You already have God's approval. 
that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul talks to Timothy and says, listen, present yourself as one approved before God. Because why? In the gospel, you already are. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to lie. You don't have to be deceitful about it. You don't have to conceal the true self. You don't have to suppress your struggles and lie about how you are actually feeling in this moment in time, what you might be struggling with, because at the cross, you're already exposed. Do you know that? See, the cross says something about you that's far more scarier than what you want to believe. It says that you are worse than your thought. You're so bad that Jesus had to die. See, that, that's how ugly the sin in your life is that Jesus had to die for. But at the same time, listen to this. You can't forget this, though. At the same time, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. Because at the same, like, while, while the cross reveals how nasty the sin is in your life, it also shows how loved you are, that Jesus would willingly go to the cross for you. See, in the gospel, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to get angry. Like, like when people sin against you, you don't have to defend and fight for yourself. God fights for you. God pre preserves you. You don't have to inch and claw at, at, at all of the little things to preserve your reputation. You can, you can say, God, I, I trust that you will preserve my life. It's a refrain of the psalmist's. You don't have to steal in the gospel because, listen, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. What's that hymn? I, I'm going to butcher it, but he says, uh, he sang it last week, I think. There, there's, no, there's nothing more for heaven to give. Every spiritual blessing, every resource that you need, namely God himself, has been given to you. You, you have no reason to covet. You have no reason to go out and steal In the gospel, we're given a status that's more prestigious than money or material items can provide. It says that we are raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places. There is no higher seat of honor than that. You don't have to tear others down. You don't have to weaponize your words out of fear, out of insecurity, because listen, in the gospel, you are secure. So Paul is saying, listen, all of those things, the new self, like all those motives, the new self addresses. It gets to the root of it and slices. So it's not like, hey, do better, try harder. It's like, listen, you already got what you're looking for in the gospel. Everything that you want is available to you in the person and work of Jesus. But what's interesting here is, is the rules. What we think about rules is typically like, don't do this. When Paul is offering here isn't just a list of, of prohibitions of saying not to do these things. What he's doing here is he's re-envisioning life through the lens of the gospel. He's saying, hey, because of the gospel, because of the new self, you've got this new behavior. You don't just stop at not lying. You actually speak with truth to your neighbors because you belong to each other. Honesty and integrity matter to God. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts of the gospel is the ability to be honest. 
We live in such a deceptive world. You never know what people are really thinking. But here in the gospel, we're given the ability to speak the truth in love to one another. And and listen to this. This is important for the church. Because our credibility on carrying out the mission of God rides on our ability to be honest and tell the truth. If we are people who proclaim the truth of the gospel, our lives need to be marked by integrity. We need to have gospel integrity. He says, listen, don't, he's not just saying don't get angry and, and, and stay away from sin. See what, what's implied underneath of this when he says in verse 26, let me find it here. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What he's saying here is like, it goes beyond just not sinning by being angry. What he's calling us into is this pursuit of reconciliation. It's either a pursuit of reconciliation or the developing of thick gospel skin. So either, one, when you're hurt and somebody offends you, you have the ability to stand in your identity of Christ and like a a ping pong ball off a statue, those insults, that hurt can just bounce off because you know, man, God has got my back. God is looking out for me. My identity is secure. secure. I don't have to be afraid or I I don't have to fear how I'm being sinned against. Or you pursue reconciliation. And not letting the sun go down on your anger, it might mean Matthew 18, you go to your brother who sinned against you and say, brother, man, that cut deep. I'm in a spot where I want to pursue reconciliation. I feel like you sinned against me. I might have sinned against you. I want to pursue reconciliation. See, that's, that's getting underneath of what Paul is. More than just prohibiting sinful anger, he's calling us into addressing the, the issue in a timely manner, not letting it fester and create division among our brothers and sisters. Or if you go on to the next one, we talks about, in verse 28, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, this is fascinating. So it's not just, hey, stop stealing. There's a a transformation. See, a a thief that stops stealing is just a a thief in between jobs. (laughs) And what what God is calling those who steal to goes beyond stopping stealing to get a job and work honestly, and then even beyond that, give to the vulnerable, give to the people who are in need. So there's this complete transformation where the thief used to take advantage of the vulnerable to now God has worked so powerfully in your life where you work honestly and are uh, um, giving to those who are in need. That's what gospel transformation, like look at Zacchaeus, gospel transformation. And the last one is, listen, you don't have to tear others down. And the reason is because you are are secure. So it's not just, I'm going to hold my tongue about all the negative things I think about somebody in my mission community or my coworker or whoever it might be. It goes on to say, listen, not just hold your tongue. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So it's not just hold your tongue, but listen, 
use words that, that build up, but he says it in an in a, in a appropriate way. Where, what's the actual language here? Um, that is fitting for the occasion. So here, he's not saying, hey, build each other up using lip service. No, no, no. We're still speaking honestly to one another, but we're doing it in, in a way that builds people up. So listen, this is what it might look like. You might have somebody in your MC um, that wants to be I'll just like a worship leader, and unfortunately, they've just got a bad voice. And it's hard to be a worship leader if you can't sing well. And I know that as a fact, because I tried it one time, didn't work out. Um, to speak honestly, to say, hey, brother, this may not be your skill set. This may not be the route God has paved for you. But here are the things in your life that I do see. Here are the positive attributes. Here are the things that I can encourage you to live into. Right? So again... Speak of the truth in love, not to dare down, but to build up, right? Helping people find their lane. And I think that this is, this is a gift. This is a gift because in our culture where so much of, of the interactions that we have are critical, condemning, cancel culture stuff at the church, I'm going to protect your dignity. I'm going to see you. I'm going to value you. I'm going to speak the truth about you. But I want to see you build up. I want to see you become fully mature in Christ, like Paul has talked about previously. Now, if we look at these rules, if, if the rules for life that God lays out, most of the world religions will endorse these rules and say, yeah, these are good rules. They make sense. See, that's a great thing about God's law. It's logical. It makes sense. Now, the difference here between Christianity and every other religion is that Christianity can give you the power to actually live into those rules. Religion will say, do better, try harder, pedal faster, work your tail off to try to do it. And if you fail, we'll get back up and keep trying, because one of these days you'll get it. See, underneath of this the saying of other religions is obey, and then you'll be accepted. Obey, follow the rules, and then you'll be loved. But the gospel, the, the Christian message is that you are already loved. There's nothing you can do to accumulate more of God's love. There's nothing that you can do to lose God's love. You are already loved as a child of God. Therefore, in reverence to God, in, in, in devotion to God, you live out of this love and express your love through obedience. John talks about this in, in his letters later on in the New Testament. He says, um, if you love me, they will obey my commands. See, in the gospel, the old self is expelled. All of those deceitful desires that twist us into sinful living, they get ejected. And in the gospel, we take on a new identity in Christ. And then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to live in line with it. See, there's a power in the gospel that no other religion has that gets us to, to align our lives to God's rule. But not only that, Christianity is the only religion that has a remedy when we fail to keep God's house rules. Because here's the reality. As we are these people who are sort of torn, there's tug of war between the old self and the new self that's happening in real time as we are being sanctified, I and you, we will inevitably fail at keeping God's house rules. Because nobody 
The, the, key to having, the key to succeeding at the house rules is an understanding of your gospel identity because none of us have this total, complete, perfect gospel understanding of our identity in Christ. There are going to be times where we stumble and fall and we fail at the rules. And when this happens, we don't run and hide. We don't give ourselves a pep talk and pull ourselves up by the boots and say, get back after it. We don't have to be afraid of losing our identity or losing our place in line because it's secure in the gospel. Instead, once again, we're invited to remember the gospel, to take a look at Christ. If you're thinking this morning, man, I'm really talking a lot about rules. I knew this, the church is all about rules. Christianity is all about rules. This is why I don't like it. Listen, the Bible is not a book of rules. The Bible is a story of how people like you and me can't keep the rules, but there was one man who could. Jesus came, perfectly obeyed all of the house rules. Everything that he did was life-giving. Nobody built people up more than Jesus. Nobody spoke the truth more than Jesus. There was no more integrity in any other man than Jesus. He did it all by the book, not, not to exalt himself, but out of devotion to the Lord because he loved his heavenly father and he was devoted to this. He never once veered off of this path. And because of his work, because of, of what he has done, he deserved every reward. He deserved every accolade. He deserved to be blessed and to be seated up with God. But what happened instead is he got crucified. What happened instead is that he took on our sin for us. See, we're the rule breakers. And Jesus said, listen, I see those rule breakers, and I'm willing to take on what they have, all their baggage, and on the cross, Jesus was the one who was broken for us. See, as we come to the table, we, we acknowledge the fact that his body was broken, his blood was shed, and why did he do it? He did it for sinners like us who couldn't keep the rules. But in this, as Jesus takes upon our sinfulness, he accredits us with his righteousness. That in God's eyes, my identity tells me that I am white as snow, that I've been forgiven, that I have his blessing that Jesus earned. And in the gospel, once again, we are made new and renewed every time we come back to it. And this is how God is glorified. When you and I, the hopeless rule breakers that we are, devote our allegiance to God by clinging to Jesus, and the more that we cling to Jesus, the more our lives align with the way that God wants us to live. See, there, there's no other way around it. Uh, every other way is going to either lead to rebellion or to licentiousness, or licentiousness or legalism. But here in the gospel, God gives us a way forward. God gives us the way to flourishing for my good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you that though we think we know, you have, have a, a special kind of grace to help us, to humble us, to show us your ways. And, and the, the reality is, Lord, your ways are not my ways. They are, they are high above. They are far loftier. They're more glorious and grand than I could comprehend. And, and, and this has shown that we are saved not by our ability to follow the rules, but the fact that Jesus did it perfectly. 
that he humbled himself even to the point of death, obeying you even in his last moments as, as life escaped from him. And his, as his body was broken, as he was crushed, sinners like me and folks in this room are being mended together bit by bit. Father God, we ask that you'd help us to live into our identity, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that give you the glory and the praise and open us up to the, the abundant life, the life of flourishing. We ask this, God, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' beautiful and mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.